Okay, so this topic we just sta- we started last week, um, and uh, I promised a continuation, but uh, of course we have to recap. So the um, final mitzvah in the Torah, mitzvah number six hundred thirteen, recorded in Deuteronomy chapter thirty-one, um, that it is incumbent upon every individual to write a sefer Torah. Now write this song for yourselves. Teach it to the Jewish people. Place it in their mouth. So that this song should be as a testimony for the Jewish people. So there are a number of um, important things to address over here. <coughs> Sorry, I just got distracted. Um, <coughs> in the new building we'll have classrooms, designated classrooms and then we won't have these issues <laughs> anyway so the first um, the, the, the first thing that that's, right, that's obvious is where it says to write the song what is the song and how does this mean that there's a mitzvah for every individual to write to say for Torah um, so again, I'm just going to recap. Last week we um, spoke a, 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 a number of ways to understand this, but basically there were two approaches. One approach was that um, Shira refers to the Shiras Hazinu. This this verse appears at the end of chapter 31, uh, or middle of chapter 31, and it leads into chapter 32. Th- chapter Chapter 32 is the song of Hazinu, which is a song not because it's a very happy content. On the contrary, it's a, it's sort of warning of all the um, calamities that will happen if we do not follow the Torah. That this will be testimony to us that if we neglect to fulfill our responsibilities, there will be repercussions. But the reason it's called a song is because it's poetic. The, um, it's written in a very in, in an unusual language and it's very poetic. And the commentaries delve into it. There's all different opinions of how to understand it and the meaning, because that's the, the nature of poetry is that it's not uh, explicit. Um, additionally, it's um, said the Friedrich Rebbe said if people would understand the know the potency of knowing this song properly, everybody would know it. There are actually people who say it every day by heart. Um, there's uh, the famous story with the Ramban that everybody's, everybody is, um, every Jew, their destiny is, a, or their name or their destiny or something about them is alluded to in this song. And there's a famous story with a st- student of the Ramban by the name of Avner who was so appalled by this suggestion that this triggered him to go OTD off the derech, but then later on he, um, the Ramban showed him where his life was alluded to in the, in, in the song. So one approach is to say that, that when Mo- Hashem commands to write the song, what it means is to write Shira Shazino, to write Deuteronomy chapter 32. The problem is that there is a prohibition against writing portions of Torah. You can't write a portion of the Torah. Now we're not talking about printing in a book, we're talking about writing on parchment with the, you know, the, the, the that that was the type of writing that was in, around, yeah? You're not allowed to write a part of the Torah. You can only write the whole Torah. So you have... Oh, 
Very good. So two people asked this question. The Chassam Soifer, who was a very prominent uh, 19th century, or maybe even 18th century Hoshik, and also Steve Edelmus. They both asked the same question, but I'll get there in a minute. Um, great, 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 great. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, um, so you're not allowed to write a portion of the Torah. So the Torah tells you, you've got to get your Gemara thinking on. The Torah tells you you have to write Deuteronomy 32. In order to write Deuteronomy 32, you have to write the whole Torah. That's one approach. Now, there's a number of problems with this approach. Um, one of the problems is, like Steve just mentioned, that... Um, what do you mean? You, the Torah, you, you're not allowed to write portions of the Torah, but if the Torah, tell, if the Torah itself tells you to write a portion of the Torah, such as um, write Tefillin, write a mezuzah, write the portion of the Sota, when there was a Sota woman being given the drink in the Beis Amikdash, she would have to, um, they would write down the, you know, what is it, Numbers chapter, I don't know, five or six, something like that, maybe four, <coughs> uh, probably, probably five. So, so, so clearly, there are exceptions to the rule. So if the Torah is telling you to write the song of Hazino, then that would be exception to the rule. Um, so there's two ways you could go with this question. Either you could say, well, actually, let's go to the other approach of how, why, how does Shiva mean the whole Torah? But one way of reconciling this question is that you're not allowed to... The, the, why are you not allowed to write portions of the Torah? Because a lot of... The, the way we understand Torah is from context. A lot of what we understand in Torah is from context. And if you know, for example, we say in the morning the 13 principles through which the Torah is, is, is expounded. We have klal o prat, prat o klal, when there's first a generic and then the specific, or you have dov v'shahoyu b'chlal v'yotsum in haklal. A lot of these things are based on context, based on the way the Torah, the context that it's coming in, that's how we understand it and that's how we interpret it. So, when it comes to tefillin and mezuzahs, nobody's learning Torah from the tefillin and the mezuzahs. They become sealed, they're closed up, and that's it. Um, nobody ever reads them. And similarly with the parasha of Sota, which is written, and then it's erased into the cup of water, and she drinks it. Whereas here, the Torah specifically says, why should you write this song? <coughs> Teach it to the Jewish people. And like we'll see soon, one of the reasons for this mitzvah is so that Torah is available to study. So if you were to have Torah available to study without having the whole context, um, then that would be a problem. Um, now, another way to, under, to, to, to answer this question is like this, that, and I'll preface this with another question. The Rebbe, in, in 1981, um, the Rebbe initiated the campaign of the children's Sefer Torah and later also adult Sefer Torah where people should buy a letter in the Sefer Torah which was a novel concept at the time today it's become very popular many people do this but at that was a novel concept and in the subsequent um, approximately a year throughout the rest of this was around Pesach time of 1981 and through the end of 1981 and even the beginning of 1982 the Rebbe discussed things to do with Sefer Torah numerous times. Not just, in other words, that was sort of the springboard, and the Rebbe discussed numerous things. So one of the things the Rebbe says is, I don't understand, Moses is talking to the Jewish people, telling them to write the Torah. This is towards the end, the last few days of Moses' life, if not the last day, right? He passes on the seventh of Adar, 
after the seventh, and this 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 is Deuteronomy begins um, through less than forty days before he dies on the first of Shvat. So he's talking to them for less than forty days, and this is towards the end of his speech. So this is right, the, you know, the last few days after Moses dies. There's thirty days of mourning, which brings you till the seventh of Nisan, and on the tenth of Nisan they cross the Jordan into Israel. So. When did every Jew have time? Six. How many? When did they all have time to write Sifrei Torah? You know how many parchments you have to procure, and so that's one of the questions the Rabbi asks. And let me just look it up. I think I might, I might actually say there might even be some more to it. So, one approach to the one, one approach that the rabbi suggests is that Torah Megillah Megillah Nitna. That means there is one again, like have most things, there's two opinions. But one understanding of the process of the giving of the Torah was that at Sinai Moses wrote from Bereshis until to date, right until Pashas Yisrael, Exodus number of Parukas Yisrael. Uh, 19, 20, so, 18 maybe, anyway, so nobody's even checking up if I'm on target, so I could, I could just be, I could just be bragging, there's a chumash right behind you, and, uh, and nobody's going to know, we trust you, I don't trust myself, I'm just making it up, um, so over there, so Moses wrote until then, and then as time progressed, as they spent the 40 years in the desert, Moses continued twenty. Ten Commandments are in Exodus twenty. Um, Moses continued writing piece by piece, and so, and of course, the concept of writing wasn't new over the uh, new then. Already from when Moses came down from Sinai, he says, "Whatever I tell you now is divided into two categories: this Torah Shabbichsav." the written Torah, and Torah Shabbat, the oral Torah. What do you think you're supposed to do with written Torah? You're supposed to write it. So everybody kept their notebooks. Everybody was writing the Torah as they went along. And therefore, at the end, when Moses tells them, okay, write the Torah, what do they have to do? They just have to finish the last two chapters. That's not such a big deal. Now, based on this logic, the Torah to me, I mean, of course, the, Rebbe, the Torah to me, of course, doesn't quote the Rebbe. The Rebbe doesn't quote the Torah to me either. Um... I don't think. But the Torah Tmimah suggests, um, and it could be that Ksava Kabbalah also suggests this. Anyway, the suggestion is made. Why does Moses say, why does the Torah say, write this song? Why not write the Torah? The answer is, they've already written the whole Torah. They just have to write the song, and then the last few verses of Vezos Abracha, and then and then they've written the whole Torah, because they already have from Bereshis until the song. So when you say, write the song, and Chazal say that means that there's a mitzvah incumbent upon everybody to write the whole Torah, it doesn't just mean um, because, well, you have to write the song, but you're not allowed to write the song without writing the whole Torah. No, the rest of the Torah is already written. And you just have to write the song and thereby complete the Torah. Is it possible because it was called a song, <coughs> they didn't think it was part of the Torah, and therefore they needed explicit instructions? Like, this is part of the Torah, it's not just a song. That's an interesting idea. 
I don't recall. First of all, even if I don't, even if I never saw that idea, it's an interesting idea and it could be a thing. I don't recall. It's possible. It's, it's, it is ringing a bell, so it's possible that somebody already suggests that. But th- there's definitely something similar, which is interesting. That I, I didn't research this, but the Chassam Soifer, who I mentioned before, and Hakshava Kabbalah. Hakshava Kabbalah was Rabbi. Um, Rabbi Yaakov Mecklenburg. We believe you again. Who? Be interesting to check up if he ever it was possible <coughs> for him to meet the Chassam Soifer, or uh, you know who was not so good with the years. But Rabbi Yaakov Mecklenburg has a fascinating commentary on the Chumash, um, and a big part of his agenda is, as was the agenda of many of the European commentaries of the 18th century was <coughs> counter, countering the Bible critics. So a lot, of his, a, a, a lot of his commentary gets into these type of questions with words or things seem a little bit strange, and he's trying to sort of explain how this is actually a perfectly reasonable way of expre- method of expression. So he gets into this thing with the Shira, and so both Samsefa and him say something which is perhaps along the lines of what you're suggesting, that imagine if the Torah gives you, if the doctor gives you a, um, a recipe to make a medicine, and you know you have to put Steve. How, yeah, it's probably not so easy. There's a lot of details, and it has to be done right. So you better write down everything the doctor says. This is before they have drug stores, and he just writes a code that the pharmacist knows, right? You got you have to get all the details in, and you have to go home and find the right herbs and cook it, and right. So you're gonna write down all the things. And then the doctor tells you, you better make sure to do this medicine right and take it every day on time, because if you don't, you will die. Right? Now he says, imagine the guy comes home, and he, he writes himself down on a piece of paper, I have to take this medicine every day or else I'll die, but he doesn't actually write the recipe or the instructions. So he says, What's go- what is the Song of Hazino? The Song of Hazino, as is the introduction which we're discussing now, uh, Deuteronomy 31, look at it. What is it all about? You better remember to keep the Torah. You better keep this, every word of it, because every word is important to God, and if you don't do it, lightning will strike. You know, it's, it, it's harsh stuff, but that's what it is. So he says, when the Torah tells you, when the doctor tells you, write this down for yourself, write down what I'm telling you, that if you don't do this, you will die, right? The doctor doesn't have to also tell you, and write down the ingredients. That goes without saying. If the Torah is telling you, I want you to remember Shira Sazino, and that you should write it down so that you remember it, then obviously he also means that you should write the whole Torah. So, along the lines of what you were saying was, obviously you have to write the to- whole Torah. The Chiddush is that you also have to write the Song of Hazinu. So that's, that's a second approach to this, uh, to this mitzvah. And um, finally, the other approach is also suggested by both Chassam Seifer and Chassam Kabbalah and others, that actually Shira doesn't mean the Song of Azino. The whole Torah is called a song, and we discussed this last week. Why would the whole Torah be a song? And uh, one of the ideas is how in music every every note and every last every last detail is of significance to the whole picture, etc., etc. But for various reasons, and we find um, numerous verses w- which refer to the Torah as a song. We have in, in, in Psalm 119 where... David says, your, your song was like, your Torah was like, a, your statues are like a song to me. We have in the Chabad Siddur, we say before Mayrev, the verse of Alay Lo Shira Imi, 
that at night his song is with me. His song refers to the Torah, that we study Torah at night. And so, Kisul Lechem Shira means write the whole Torah, so we don't need to get into all these complicated things. Shira means Torah. Okay. So now the question... You want to ask something? Now the question is, um, so we have a mitzvah to write the whole Torah, but history has shown, right, we don't need to be very... Not many people write the Torah themselves. So how could it be that one of the 630 mitzvahs, and we know that, um, you know, the Rebbe spoke many times how the Rambam codifies what's Mashiach all about. Mashiach is here to reinstate all the mitzvahs that we can't do without, without Mashiach, right? The mitzvahs that are connected to the Beis HaMikdash, etc. So clearly, you know, we have 630 mitzvahs and every one of them important, like we just said, music, right? So how could it be that so many people throughout generation, the generations have um, very devout, holy people, but we don't find that people should do this mitzvah of writing in Sefer Torah. They pay Yochanan. Well, I mean, I clearly could not write a kosher Torah. So is it that you just write the letters, or does it have to be written in a kosher way such that it can be used in a shul? Now, before you say that, you pay someone if to in write the beginning it. of your life you were trained to do it, because you knew you would have to do it, you could write it. So saying that you can't write it now doesn't seem a reasonable exemption. Except I'm about to, though. It doesn't make any difference. You can start Wait, now. Well, how many and it gets me out of so much. How many people <laughs> in Chicago do you know how to write a safe and tourist? A half a handful? Right, but that's the, the point. Whole but it's also the matter of the Kavana. Okay. Yeah, but also, you could have started, everybody when they started, they would say, okay, at this point you're going to have to end up writing the whole one. So you would learn all the other things you'd learn. You'd learn how to do it properly. The fact is nobody in history is... I don't understand, saying, Steve. My wife's Steve. cousin wrote if his God. own safe and Torah. He wrote him in Gilles Esther. He's amazing. Steve, <laughs> if God would come to you now and say, Steve, I would like you to write a safe Torah, what do you think you would do? <laughs> uh, do a lot of studying and praying before I start. <laughs> I think you would quit your job and devote your whole life to learning how to become a sofa and writing a safe Torah. It might take you five years of full-time work, but that's what you would do, right? Depends how much God would pay. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's more than what he's currently earning. <laughs> he didn't write the same Torah until he so, retired. Um, as luck would have it. So, 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 so this, is, this is a question that has perplexed scholars throughout the generations, and I'm going to suggest to you a number of different approaches, including, like I said, in that year of 81, the Rebbe spoke about this numerous times, and the Rebbe also made various suggestions, and hopefully we'll touch upon them. So... But the first thing... Oh, I didn't take it as an attack. Okay. <laughs> the, first, the, first, the first basic thing is, before we get into anything, to any um, lambdas, is that like with many mitzvahs, um, so for example, sometimes you might make kiddush. Well, not the best example, but I'll start there. The sometimes you make kiddush, sorry? Or the kiddush, doing things for... No, but that's not my mitzvah. Right? You have a chiyuv to make Kiddush, but sometimes you don't make Kiddush. Sometimes you yotze Kiddush from somebody else. Now, yotze, when you yotze from somebody else, is not the same necessarily as making an agent, because there we're including the principle of Shemea Ka'ina, that when you hear something, it's as if you said it. But many mitzvahs that we have, there is the concept of making an agent. Um, so last week we gave the example of Kiddushin, that strictly speaking, you don't have to go to your chuppah, you can send an agent to betroth the woman on your behalf. Um, and n- numerous other examples like that, where you could make a shliach um, to do something on your behalf. Um, 
So the same is true with when it comes to writing a Sefer Torah, that if um, you don't know how to write a Sefer Torah, so then you don't need to bother. You could just hire Yochanan to write a Sefer Torah for you. And even though usually we say mitzvah that it's always preferable to do the mitzvah yourself um, rather than make an agent, which is why most people do show up to their own weddings. Um, the, the, one of the reasons. Um, but um, but here, here would be an exception because why, what's the logic? Why do we always say it's better to do the mitzvah yourself than to make an agent to do it? Right? You have a mitzvah to tithe your produce. So you could either go down to your field and take the tithes or you could send your work out there to do it on your behalf. Why would it be better to do it yourself? Because then you know it's being done correctly. No, it's a direct, it's a direct doing it's rather than indirect. Yeah, what? Well, yeah, that's the mitzvah. We own it. You know. Right. To show your mitzvah. dedication to the mitzvah yeah, exactly. or your appreciation and love for God and love of the mitzvahs, you want to do it yourself. Like, you know, Abraham uh, harnesses his donkey himself and that, right? So don't just get someone to do it for you. Do it yourself. So the idea is we prefer that you do it yourself to show your cheri- you're, you're cherishing the mitzvah. <coughs> so the, when the rabbi discussed the rabbi said... Sometimes the way you cherish the mitzvah is by getting somebody else to do it. Because, yes, I could learn how to become a sofer and write it myself. But somebody else who's more artistic than me, if I'm going to hire him to do it on my behalf, um, that, is the, that would be a more beautiful Sefer Torah. So, in this case, it's topsy-turvy. That the way I would show that I cherish the mitzvah is precisely by not doing it myself and hiring an agent to do it. And perhaps... A similar, the rabbi doesn't say this, but I think a similar example to, to this would be the mitzvah of circumcision, right? Where um, the, um, it's the mitzvah upon the father of the child to circumcise his son. Um, most people do not do the mitzvah themselves. They appoint an agent in the form of a male to do it for them. Um, but, okay, then, then there's also medical considerations, but... I mean, and there are people, I mentioned last week, there are people who do that mitzvah themselves because they just get the moil to set it up and to just do the actual act of the mitzvah once the moil has set it up doesn't take all that much talent. But nevertheless, there, the, the, I, I, I think that getting a moil to do it for you, on the contrary, like, I want to do this mitzvah in the best possible way with causing the least discomfort to the baby, etc., etc. My way of cherishing the mitzvah is by appointing an agent, uh, the moil, to do it for me. So that's, so that's the first stage, but the problem is that most people don't appoint an agent to write a Sefer Torah for them either. And I'll just like to emphasize that buying a Sefer Torah doesn't mean that, that doesn't work. You can't just buy a Sefer Torah. You have to appoint an agent just like you can't, uh, like any mitzvah has to be done with all the criteria of a mitzvah. Is, there has to be kavod and you have to, intent, right? You can't just find a Sefer Torah and pay for it and say, oh, no, you have to hire some... If somebody will do it for you for free, that's fine. But you have to appoint somebody to write it for you. Now, then the next thing that the Rambam says is that it's... um, Even if a person is magia, one letter of a Sefer Torah, it's as if he has written it. So... There's different ways of understanding what this means. Um, 
One way of understanding it is that you have a Sefer Torah which is not kosher because there's a letter missing or there's a, there's a letter that's puzzle, that's you know, that's touching the letter next to it, whatever, various things that could make a letter puzzle. And if you fix that Sefer Torah and render it kosher in so doing, um, then you... Um, then you fulfill the mitzvah of writing the Sefer Torah. Another way of understanding it is uh, that it means if you, even if you don't find any mistakes, but just checking the Sefer Torah or fixing a letter, even if it was kosher before you checked it, there's various sort of intricacies in how to understand that. Um, and that is another approach to fulfilling the mitzvah, although perhaps not the ideal way. But again, that's not something that we find that people do. And even the custom that is... Uh, the custom that we have that when we do make then everyone comes and participates in writing the last few letters it's definitely within the spirit of the mitzvah that and it's that everyone participates etc etc but it's difficult to argue that from a legal perspective you fulfill the mitzvah of writing a sefer Torah by writing that letter um, for many reasons but one reason is the idea is that kol ish vish every individual has to have a sefer Torah so a hundred people wrote the last letter, so who, whose Torah is it? Right? And there's numerous other issues with that custom. And like the Rebbe himself emphasized numerous times that um, when I'm talking about buying a letter in the Sefer Torah, don't confuse that with fulfilling the mitzvah of writing the Sefer Torah. You do not fulfill the mitzvah of, writing, of buying a Sefer Torah by buying a letter. The Rebbe happened to speak about it in that context. That, I mean, it doesn't say this, but from the context, it seems that what happened was that because the Rebbe spoke about it, people often misconstrued things, and then the Rebbe heard it being said in his name that if you buy a letter in the Sefer Torah, you have fulfilled the mitzvah. And the Rebbe said, no, I never said that, <laughs> right? You don't fulfill the mitzvah of writing a Sefer Torah by buying a letter. Buying a letter is a beautiful thing, and you participate, and it's actors, <coughs> and I said, you know, one of the, one of the interesting things, that the, the final mitzvah of the Torah is a mitzvah that most people can't do themselves, and we'll see soon how we do, what the different approaches to how we do do it are, but there's a message here in that if you, you can't really fulfill the Torah by yourself. In order to be a good Jew and fulfill all the mitzvahs, you can't live in isolation. You have to be part of a community. But we'll get more, more, more on that soon. Now, so most people don't write Sefer Torah themselves. Most people don't appoint an agent to do it for them. And most people don't find the Sefer Torah which needs to be fixed and fixed it up, fixed it up. And like the Rebbe often said, that it's not just most people don't do it, you would have to do it as soon as you become Bar Mitzvah, right? As soon as the obligation takes effect. We, we don't find that people do this. Isn't that how it used to be? I, I get the impression nowadays we buy the letter and we have a shliach like Yochanan uh, Nathan writing the last letter. In the past, wasn't it used? Isn't it used to be where actually each individual they didn't write the Torah, but they actually wrote the last letter? So from from what I've heard, when uh, when if you were to check to see if a Torah a hundred or two hundred years ago was kosher, one of the things you do is you go right to the end, and you'll see if each of the letters were written by somebody else. That's, that makes sense. You're referring to a story outlining the letter, and they would ask people to you fill it in with the right. But you could tell that? that because everybody would fill yeah. it in differently. Yeah. Spartan so do it in a different way. I think, say, oh, right. yeah. I think the Spartan, they write the whole letter, and then but there's a gap, and you just fill in the gap. There's a story with the Neudah Behuda that there was the Jewish community. The Neudah Behuda was the Rav in Prague. I think he was even related somehow to some sefer, but I can't 
we'll figure this out. So Yehuda was the father-in-law of Rabbi Kiva Eger, and Rabbi Kiva Eger was something with some sofer. Anyway, um, but there's definitely some familial something there. Um, I should know history better. Anyway, um, but so they basically there was a monastery selling a sefer. Came to offer the Jewish community to sell a sefer Torah, and the community there were a number of shilas involved, and you know so where how the monastery get it. But one of the questions was how do we determine that this is a legit sefer Torah? And the Nodibihuda said, roll it to the end and see if you could tell that the last letters are, uh, are you know. So that, that's, I believe, the story you're referring to. Um, How would that make it legitimate or illegitimate? Well, that would be ind- indicative of the fact that it was written by a Jewish community and somehow made its way to the monastery, but not that it was written by some learned uh, Christian priest. Which in those days, there were many of the... Christian theologians who were very familiar with Hebrew and Jewish law and Talmud and maybe they so were... So your assumption is that if the last letters are if they fulfill the, right, then it's the, actually kosher. Because the Nebuchadnezzar was Nebuchadnezzar saying that... I mean, there's others, right, that you look at... Of course, yeah, yeah. The Nebuchadnezzar was just saying, like, if you could tell that they fulfilled this minhag, then you know it was written by Jews. Nobody else does that. Um... Let's, I, again, I mean, I, haven't, I don't know if this is printed in his truvis. This is the story, they say. Um, now, so, so most people are not doing any of these, uh, of, of these um, mitzvahs. Any of these methods of fulfilling this mitzvah. So th- th- there's a truvah from the Shagasariya. I'll just share a few more approaches. There's a truvah from the Shagasariya. Where he says, "Is there anyone that says that the, the printing we have today when you buy a chumash?" Yeah, well, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. Okay. Um, <laughs> the Shagasaria basic. So, so there's a concept of chaseris v'yaseris that that um, that because every words in Hebrew there's a this, I mean, the vowels are part of the words, yeah? So, or the letters. So, so, so you could spell the same word in two different ways, right? You could have Kaddosh spelled Kuftalad Shin, you could have Kaddosh spelled Kuftalad Vav Shin. So, the, the Shagasariya says that nowadays we are no longer Baki Vechaseris Vyaseris. That means it's, it's evident from certain Gemaras that there are some words which we no longer have 100% certainty that they're supposed to be written in the full way or the. The, the the how do you say it the the short the short way shorthand or elaborate yeah and so therefore he says we don't really know if Asifre Torah are kosher so so he says as far as having sefer and shul and using them for laning fine you you lane from a sefer Torah it's still it's 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 still true that this is the word of God and you could make a blessing in it that Hashem gave us His Torah etc etc but as far as the fulfilling the commandment to write the Sefer Torah, well, maybe we've got it all wrong. Maybe there's a few letters in our Torah missing, or maybe there's a few letters that are there that don't belong there. What's the basis for that? Um, the basis is it's, it's clear from various Gemaras that they, they used to have a much stronger 
um, they, they used to know all the letters exactly, and then nowadays there's some letters that we're not on. So, so are you saying that di- different Torahs now may have slightly different spellings? Today, terms? I don't believe, there. today there's maybe one or two words that there are different spellings on in different communities. One is Ptsua Daka, famous, where the Daka is spelled Dalit Kof Aleph or Dalit Kof Hey. There may be one or two other, you know, with the Taimani communities, you know, things like that. But, know, um, but uh, yeah. You're saying in general. But in general, even though we're all, even though we've all got it, we've all got the same. We may have it wrong. With right. even if you have it wrong with one letter, we passed it down, passed the yeah. error down through the. Okay. The Chidor writes how the Rambam. Is that what Kriyak Siv? Does that have anything to do with that? Possibly. Similar idea. The Chidor. The Chidor writes how the Rambam. Um, the Rambam, <coughs> sorry, the Rambam spent excessive, uh, cr- crazy effort to be Magia Sefetera. There was a Sefetera in Yerushalayim, let me just find it, Sefetera in Yerushalayim, which had a uh, very strong Masora, and the Rambam spent many, many, much time going through it. Making sure his the Torah that he himself wrote was 100% accurate, and that later on in his life the Rambam found out that there was a Ram, yeah. There was a Sefer in Egypt, which was the Rambam himself writes. This is explicit in the Rambam. There was a Sefer in Egypt that was um, edited, so to speak, got over by Ben Usher. I don't know who Ben Usher is, but clearly he was a important person in this regard. And um, it used to be in Jerusalem, and then it came into Mitzrayim, and this is the one, this, the Sefer Torah that the Rambam himself relied on. There is possibly, there is a Tanakh, which in many, many academics, it's called Kesa Aram Tsoiva. We don't have, we don't have most of it, though we have still parts of it that were, that were, I mean, you could read up about this, just Google Kesa Aram Tsoiva. Um, but many academics hold that this is, that this is what the Rambam was talking about, and that, um, this is the most accurate version of the Bible that we have. Um, I'm not even sure if we have Chumash. Do we have Chumash from them? Mm. We may or may not, but we, we definitely don't have the whole 24 books of Scripture. We have parts of it, um, which were they, they, they were in Yemen, and it sort of had its rounds, whatever it was. But anyway, so it could be that that's the Sefer the Rambam is referring to, the Kesar Ram Seva. But be that as it may, he spent a lot of time editing it. And then he says that he later he found the Chumash in the handwritten in the handwriting of the Rambam, which um, he says the Rambam found out that in the kingdom of Borjona, does anybody know what Borjona is? I don't know. In the kingdom of Borjona, there was a Sefer Torah handwritten by Ezra HaSefer, and so the Rambam traveled to this place and found um, that the Sefer Torah that Ezra had written was exactly the same as the Sefer Torah from Ben Osher that the Rambam had. And um, then he again made sure to copy it exactly, and he spent tremendous effort on this. And so that's, that's what we consider, the Chidos says, that's considered the most accurate. There's also, it's not just about the letters, it's also Psuchus and Stumus, because when you have paragraphs in the Torah, so there's two types of paragraphs. You can have an open paragraph or a closed paragraph, which basically means... Does the next paragraph start on the same line or the next line, the beginning of the line, the middle of the line? I'm sure, I'm sure you noticed when you get an aliyah, there's different types of breaks in between the paragraphs. Is so, that the same as the concept of uh, open and closed? Yes, yeah. yes. 
Okay, so that's the Shagazari's argument. The, the, there's a number of problems with the Shagazari's argument. Um, the primary problem is that even if there is a chance that we got it wrong, I mean, the principle is that Safik that if there's a biblical mitzvah, so then if in doubt, you have to be, you have to err on the side of caution. So everyone should have to write a Sefer Torah because maybe we do, maybe we have it wrong, but maybe we don't have it wrong. Ramosha Feinstein uses another trick, so to speak, and he says, based on the principle which Ramosha talks about a lot, that the principle is that you know, for, posit- for negative mitzvah you have to give up all your money not to violate the negative mitzvah. But to fulfill a positive mitzvah, you don't have to spend a tremendous amount of money. Now, I'm not going to get into how you evaluate what a tremendous amount of money is, right? But let's say your only way to fulfill the mitzvah of lulav would be by spending, by taking out a mortgage, then you don't have to fulfill the mitzvah of lulav. If your only way, I mean, I don't, whatever the scenario would be, if let's say the only way to abstain from eating pork was to get another mortgage, then you would have to get another mortgage. But if your only way, because that's a negative mitzvah, but if your only way to fulfill the mitzvah of lulav, you're on a desert island, there's no Jews, and there's no love, and there's no imports, and there's no FedEx, and yeah, and the only way to do it was to just get a mortgage, and think, then you would be exempt. Does that, does that say something about the value of a positive mitzvah versus a negative mitzvah? They're, they're different. That's a very interesting question. I'm going to, I'm not going to go there now, because it's already 9.45. Um, so, Ramosha says that the reason why most people don't fulfill the mitzvah of Torah is uh, the, the writing of Torah is because throughout history, including today, usually it would cost a tremendous amount of money, time, effort. For be, I mean, even if you knew how to write, you would have to take a year off work to do it, right? So, because it's su- a trust, such, such a tremendous cost, um, so that's why people don't do it. He says. I think we should cancel Pesach. That's a pretty tremendous cost. Well, first of all, Pesach is also a negative mitzvah. Oh. <laughs> it was an idea, though. <laughs> <laughs> the the Chinuch says, I mentioned this last week, and Bob is eyeing this book. I can tell from the beginning of the class he's been staring at it as he wants it. Um, um, I already told you, the principle of Base Menachem is if you ask me for a book, either I tell you where it is, or if we don't have it, you have to sponsor it. Um, so, <laughs> um, I'm not going to ask you where the Torah is. Then. <laughs> <laughs> so the Chiluch is sort of like a code where he has his template he goes through all the 613 mitzvahs. So at the end of every mitzvah, he says, who does this mitzvah apply to, and how would you fulfill it or violate it? So he says, how would somebody violate this mitzvah of writing in Sefer Torah? If a person, I'll just read to you their translation, this mitzvah applies at every location in all time, so it's not limited to the time of the temple, or, you know, like that. Mitzvah applies only to men. One who transgresses this mitzvah and does not write a Sefer Torah for himself when he is able to do so in any manner has violated this mitzvah obligation. Now what does it mean if you're able to do so in any manner? So perhaps one way of understanding it is that we're sort of precluding here that you don't 
because it's a positive mitzvah, you don't have to spend your whole money. That's one way of understanding what the chinuch means. That you because you don't have to spend so much money. And again, with this, there are a number of problems. I'll point just to two of them. First of all, there is a question whether or not this this um, dispensation that you don't have to spend all your money on a positive mitzvah does it apply to a positive mitzvah that's once in a lifetime? So, for example, if you would have to take out a mortgage to fulfill the mitzvah of circumcision, um, then um, possibly you would have to, even though it's a positive mitzvah, because it's a once in a lifetime mitzvah. Um, let's say, forget about circumcising a child. If an adult wasn't circumcised and he has a mitzvah to circumcise himself, um, or, or uh, I'm just thinking another example, I was actually recently speaking to somebody who did not have a pit in that band because he assumed himself to be a levy, but we're in the middle of verifying it's not so clear that he is a levy. So he may, he's an adult, and he may, if this, well, we'll see what happens, but perhaps he's going to come to my office one day and we'll have to bring in a coin and do a pit in band. So what if Pitina Ben costs whatever it is, it's uh, the price of silver, but uh, I don't know, somewhere between 90 and $120, yeah? So, so what if he doesn't have so much money? So you could say that, uh, well, it's a once-in-a-lifetime mitzvah, so you have to do it anyway. Right, anyway. Um, the other question is, and this is something which I think in the, in, in the Rebbe's approach is something, that there were many, even though there is this dispensation and you're not obligated to spend more than a hoin rav on a mitzvah there were many Jews very devout Bali Mysterious Nefesh the Rebbe in one of his talks actually mentioned his own father who uh, who gave the, not just their every penny who gave their every life for the minutest nuance uh, minutia what's the word of, of, of every mitzvah so, so it can't yeah it can't be that all these not me but these great tzaddikim throughout history who were most nefesh for the minutest detail of Torah and mitzvahs that they didn't do it just because it's too expensive. That doesn't really add up. So the Rebbe has another. The Rebbe, there's another approach here, which the Rebbe basically says, in short, that there's a concept of leave best in masnaleim, and that is that. Bezdin, and we're not talking here about a specific Bezdin, you know, in the CRC. There's a Bezdin is the sort of the institution. It could have been a Bezdin thousands of years ago, and they could have made this um, sort of built this into the constitution, and it's just there, the, the amendment sort of it's there forever. That is that. What's the idea of writing a Sefer Torah? Like I'm going to get to your thing about books, but. What's the idea of, of the, what's the idea of the mitzvah? Lambda Spinei to teach it to the Jewish people. So the mitzvah is that you should learn from the Sefer Torah. So the Rebbe says, Leif Bezdin Masnaleim. The Bezdin enacted that every individual Jew, when they get an aliyah in the Sefer Torah, that say, who does the Sefer Torah belong to? It belongs to the tzibur. It belongs to the community. So as a part of the, commu- the community, when you get an aliyah in the Torah for ju- the duration of your aliyah. The Sefer Torah belongs to you. And we actually find such a concept in other areas. So, for example, Baruch Hashem nowadays we're blessed with affluence and uh, transportation and, and import and export. And everybody has their own little asterisk. But it used to be common that um, every shtetl in Europe, if they were lucky, there was one set of kosher set of arba minim in the, in, the, in, the, in the town. And who did it belong to? 
it was a, and there's many responses written about this because the halacha is that the lulav has to belong to you, it has to be your own property, at least on the first day, which is we have this whole thing of matanam and aslahachzir. So if it belongs to me, I can give it to you as a gift with the stipulation that you have to afterwards return the gift. But if it belongs to the community, well, who's going to give it to you as a gift? So if it belongs to the community, how could you fulfill this mitzvah? And there's many tshuvas written about this, but basically the upshot of it is that that every that this lulav shall belong to you while you're fulfilling the mitzvah and to you while you're fulfilling the mitzvah so this was the Rebbe's um, suggestion that the same applies to the mitzvah of writing a Sefer Torah that everybody fulfills the Sefer Torah by being part of a community that has one and periodically getting an aliyah in that Sefer Torah That would be an interesting case in the middle of the Uralia. You run off with the Sefer Torah and you say, it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> you have to go based in and argue that point. I once had that. I was about to put it on film with somebody in Israel. I put it on film and he just walked off with my phone. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, hey, dude, come back. <laughs> so, yeah, he, I, I think he was a little bit. I don't know. He was an interesting dude. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a little more. I'm not. Yeah, I, I don't think he was trying to steal them. I think he was just a little bit distracted. Yeah, he didn't speak. He spoke only Russian. Uh, it was a it was a strange encounter. Anyway, okay. So now, Rabshalom is asking about um, Sfarim. So, so, so. By the way, it's interesting because the the rabbi the Lakutu Sikhs is the rabbi's edited talks, which are often compiled from various talks. So in Lakutu Sikhs, in volume 23 and 24, there are two Sikhs about this, which start off with basically the same question, why doesn't everyone write the Sefer Torah? And in both of them, there are two completely different approaches. In the second one, in volume 24, <coughs> there's the approach that I just said now. Um, which, again, I mean, it's a long thesis, and there's a lot of intricate details, but I just gave you the, the point, that the idea is that when you get an aliyah, it's like, isn't there? In, and in the two, there's almost no overlap in between the two, which is somewhat unusual. Um, and this sikha, which is much more complicated, um, and so, so, so I'm not going to get into all the details of this one either, but this one is relating to your point about writing Svarim. You know, there was a mashpia in Svas by the name of Rebaran Leza Tzaitlin, very special Jew, he passed away unfortunately at a young age. But when I my first one of the, when I first went to yeshiva in Israel in 2003, so I was at his house for a Shabbos, so we had a big Fabrengen Friday night, and he was telling a story about one time when the rabbi gave him fi- a packet of 50 single dollar bills and a bottle of wine, and then he was attacked. It was like some whole miracle. He was saying, anyway, in the middle of the story, a whole new group of people came to join the Fabrengen, so he wanted a break. So he told me repeat the story heretofore, <laughs> and then I'll take, you know, why should I, you know, he wants to read. So I started repeating the, the, um, the story. Now, I was from England, and I wasn't so familiar with the American uh, uh, way of speaking, so he had said that the Rebbe gave him 50, single dollar, 50 singles. When I repeated the story, I said the Rebbe gave him 50 $1 bills. But, I didn't, like, singles wasn't part of my thing, right? It was just it was $1 bills. So, but the way he heard it, it was like that I said the Rebbe gave him 51 singles, $51 bills. 
right? <laughs> so, so he says, what? <laughs> like, like, how did you even make that mistake? So then we were talking, and then it was like this whole joke. He says, I'll tell you a story. There was once a big r- a rumor in town going around that Yankel stole all the Sifritera. Uh, so the whole town is a buzz, and it's, uh, this was before, this was in two thousand and three. It was before smartphones and WhatsApps, but uh, you know it was. Yankel stole all the Sifri Torah. He's how could it be? I always trusted him, and this guy, and, and I heard this from a reliable. So anyway, eventually this comes to the Rav, and he calls in, he calls in, traces, tracks down the the rumor, and he says, "Okay, you are, did you say that Yankel stole all the Sifri Torah?" So he said, "No, I said that Yankel stole a Sifri Torah." So he says, oh, okay, that's the difference. Who did you hear that from? Chaim. He calls on Chaim. And um, he says, Chaim, did you say that the uncle stole a Sefer Torah? So he says, no, I never said he stole a Sefer Torah. I said he stole a Sefer. Um, and in Yiddish, you could call a Sefer Torah a Sefer also. Or you, this is a Sefer. Yeah, he stole a Sefer. He says, oh, you said he stole a Sefer. Right, okay, the story is starting to make a little bit more sense. Somebody, unfortunately, I can tell you, this is my, 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 I go to therapy for this. People taking books from the library all the time. <laughs> right, somebody stole the safer. So, so, Bob is still eyeing the chinuch. <laughs> but, I've been noticing that the book was missing for about a week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so it was on my place, I think. Because <laughs> so, <laughs> I gave the beginning of this class last week. Anyway, so he says, oh, so Yankel stole the Sefer. Who, where do you hear that from? He says, oh, whatever. Yitzchak tells me. He calls in Yitzchak. He says, did you say that Yankel stole the Sefer? He says, no. I was at a Sheva Brachus, and Yankel gave a speech. And I told the person next to me that he stole his speech from a Sefer. <laughs> so, 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 anyway, so Rabbi Tatlin said, you know, I said 51, eh? Sorry, so, are we talking about Sifri Torah or are we talking about Sfarim? So there is a very strange rush. And thanks to Bob's book over here, we even have a translation of the rush, I think. No, it doesn't translate it, he paraphrases it, and I want to read you the real deal. The Rosh says like this. Oimerani, the Rosh is. Rambam, Rif, and Rosh are considered the three primary codifiers of, of. You know, they were the first sort of generation of codifiers, even though, of course, the Rosh and the, the Rambam and the Rif were, a lot before the, were before the Rosh. But, um, for example, the Beis Yosef, who's the author of the Shulchan Aruch, the way he. There's exceptions to the rule, but as a rule, the way he decides halacha is that he says we have the three, the Rambam, Rif, and the Rosh, and I follow the majority. So wherever there's two against one, that's how he'll pass him. <coughs> so the Rosh says, Vayimerni, I say that of course there is a tremendous mitzvah to write a Sefer Torah, but that was only true in the earlier generations when they would learn from a Sefer Torah. But nowadays that we write Sefer Torah and we just leave them in the shul to learn from them in public, it is a mitzvah say upon every individual who can afford Asher Yodim Aseges again, everyone who could afford it, to write Chum Torah, the Pentateuch, also because Pent, yeah, Pentagon, Pentateuch, Mishnah, Gemara, Perushayim, to write the Mishnah and the Gemara and their commentaries, Lagos Behem to learn from them regularly to toil them. Who are one of him and his family? Because the mitzvah of writing a sefer Torah is to learn it. The chesiv, 
in the very verse that says to write a Sefer Torah, it says, write it and to the, to write the Torah so th- and teach it. And like we saw yesterday from the Chinuch, that the reason that we need to all write a Sefer Torah and that it's not good enough to say, oh, well, I have a Sefer Torah which I bought or I got it as an inheritance, why do you have to re- you write your own one? Because we want to um, pr- pr- predicate, predicate, what's the word? Um, proliferate. There should be lots of Sifri Torah in good condition. There should be nice, beautiful books, new prints. You know, we want to have Torah being as accessible as possible. Nobody should say that I, I can't learn Torah because I don't have um, I don't have a Sefer Torah. Says the Rosh. Good. Nowadays, how do you learn Torah? You learn Torah by by writing a Chumash, writing a Mishnah, writing a Gemara. Those are the mitzvah. Those are the books that a person is commanded to write. And it has all the rules of a mitzvah of Torah. Just like you're not allowed to sell a Sefer Torah, you're not allowed to sell your books. Those are, that is your fulfillment of the mitzvah of the Sefer Torah. Now, it's a very strange rush, because the rush is coming to say that the mitzvah and the Torah changes. Like, we don't do that. We're orthodox, right? We don't just change mitzvahs. So what's going on with this rush? How can a mitzvah of the Torah change? Before I continue, the, the sort of the question that that that, that, that I, I may have addressed, I don't remember how explicitly I addressed this last week, but we were talking about Haytavis and the Rebbe encouraging people to buy Sfarim. Now, how do you deal with this? Even if we take the Rosh at face value, the mitzvah is to write Sfarim. Has anybody here ever written a Sefer? Nowadays we have a printing press. And we don't even order the Sefer to be printed. The Sefer is already printed in the store, and I'm just ordering it from the store, from Amazon. Remember I said before, you, you can appoint an agent to write a Sefer Torah for you, but you can't just go and buy a Sefer Torah. He has to be writing it for you on your behalf. So how do we deal with that in an age when Sfarim are all pre-printed and you're just buying them? It's easier to, to, write a, to write a Sefer Torah, because all you have to do is copy what's already there. To write a book, you have to have original thoughts. No, well, that, that, that is true as well. But the Rosh is not saying to write original books. The Rosh is saying to write Chumash, Mishnah, and Gemara, so you could just copy it. Oh, you can copy it. But then you get into copyright issues. Well, there's no copyright on Chumash, Mishnah, and Gemara. By, by, uh, when you write, I mean, if you copy somebody's uh, formatting, then maybe. Okay, so when you, when you say rights form, it can be just a, it doesn't have to be something original, new, innovative. It can be. Right, there's definitely value in innovation, and it's another thing which the Rebbe encouraged a lot that people should write their own Torah thoughts. But, um, but, um, so what's the value? So, 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 so there's an irony that I struggle with that in an online age where everything's either on the internet or even if it's not on the internet, it's on a hard drive, which is again digital. How do we deal with? With this, and I think that there's that, that both are true. On the one hand, the value, one of the values of the mitzvah here is to make learning accessible, and the more accessible it is, the better. And how many people learn today from the Rabbi Gordon app or the YU Torah, Torah anytime, or that's audio, and even 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 um, just written things that are articles on different websites, and you know. So that's a tremendous. Pr- pr- help me with this word here, pr- predication. Um, like similar to proliferate, sorry? Proliferation. No, there's another word similar to proliferate. Propagate? Yeah, propagate. Is that the right What does propagate mean? Propagate means to spread out. Right, so this is a tremendous propagation of Torah. But on the other hand, besides the fact that you can't use it on Shabbos, <laughs> um, there is, a, there is a, a value in the written book. 
and that and part of the value is that it shapes. I mean, like I mentioned last week, the rabbi made this campaign of having a house full of books. Now, it doesn't mean that your house has to be literally full of books, but the idea is that. A Jewish a home is shaped by what's important to the homeowner. If you're an artist and you have a studio in your home, or a musician and you have a studio in your home, then you know your home is all and you have everything, but what's the pride and joy of your home is your studio. So the pride and joy of a Jewish home are the Jewish books. And that can't be substituted with a computer. For that you have to have a library. Um, and that should be sort of shaped the identity of the home. Um, and different people, again, even in terms of accessibility, I think, I mean, personally, I could check up things online, but if I'm actually reading something properly, then I have to print it out. Some people can just sit in front of a screen, but for me, I need to, right? But, um, but, but, but regardless, there is, just in the technical mitzvah of having a written book, even though we're not writing it and it's already pre-ordered, in terms of the fulfillment of the mitzvah, according to the Rosh, there's definitely value in handwritten, in tangible, physical books that are not just digital. Now, it's already after 10 o'clock, so I'm not going to go through all the, all the intricacies here, but I will say that whilst it's true that some understand the Rosh at face value, and they say that even though we don't change mitzvahs, here the Torah explicitly says that the Torah explicitly says that the reason for the mitzvah is so that you learn, and it used to be that they learned from Torah from the from from and uh, the Gemara talks about her Kiva expounded from the tagin from the crowns on the letters he expounded halachas. So at a time and an age when Jewish people were were doing that, so then the way to learn Torah was from the from 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 the Sefer Torah. But nowadays the way we learn is um, from the written Chumash, Gemara, Mishnayos, etc., etc. And some have even pointed out that this is perhaps alluded to in the verse that says, Now you should write this Torah. Now, in the years through whatever, the year of Moses' death, yeah, when there was before the permission to write, to transcribe the oral law, then the fulfillment of the Torah was by writing Hashira Hazoiz, by writing the Sefer Torah. But that's only now, the time to come, um, once the writing of the oral law becomes permissible and encouraged, so then the fulfillment of this very mitzvah is through other books. That's one way of understanding the Rosh. I think the normative way of understanding the Rosh, as is in Shulchan Aruch, is that the Rosh is saying that there is still a mitzvah to write a Sefer Torah, but that's not all there is to it. Now, nowadays, in order to really fulfill the mitzvah, you also have to write Chumash Mishnayis Gemara and others for him, um, to continue learning from. And whilst it's difficult to say that we actually fulfill this mitzvah by buying printed books, but as I believe, and again, I said to you, the other sikha in this book, in Chelech of Gimel, is a very difficult sikha, but I, I think that part of what the Rebbe is saying in that sikha is that ultimately all these sort of technicalities that it has to be handwritten and it has to be on parchment and it has to be with those are all sort of technicalities so long as the mitzvah is to write a Sefer Torah. As soon as the mitzvah develops into including, again, not like the simple reading of the Rosh, but the normative understanding of the Rosh, that it includes writing others for him, so now it doesn't matter if you write it yourself or if it's printed or if it's, you know, because the idea is to have a tangible written book and that can be fulfilled um, um, either way. I, again, I, I, I'm... I'm, I'm expressing caution, because like I said, it's a very complicated sikha, and I don't fully understand it. But I believe that that is definitely part of the suggestion that the Rebbe is making, that the technicalities of the halacha don't apply 
you know, you could perhaps fulfill it. You could fulfill it, fulfill it by buying printed books from the shop, and this is also in support of the Rebbe's campaign of bias Smolish for him. And additionally, what we said before from the earlier sicha was that the the, the the core of the mitzvah, which is writing an actual sefer Torah, we fulfill by belonging to a community and having a and the sefer Torah from time to time.